0: Think about the word control, we we used that in one of our responses uh, in our readings. If you say, he is a very controlling person, that's not really a compliment, is it? Conversely, if you say, I I love her, she's so laid back, relaxed. I mean, quintessentially Californian, flexible. Those are compliments, right? But the truth be told, every one of us wants control. We not maybe control things so much that we don't even say it, but we want control. <laughs> we want to fix our desk when it's out of control. We buy insurance for everything, or at least we can. House insurance and umbrella policy, auto insurance, health insurance, secondary health insurance if you're older prescription drug insurance. You can get wedding insurance. By the way, if you're from Westmont, wedding insurance is not if you don't like the person you marry. It's it's insurance in case it rains on the day of the wedding. So so that's that kind of insurance. You you can get insurance for just about anything. But along comes COVID, and we find out that we're not really in control. And these little tiny viri (laughs) Is that the plural of virus? (laughs) These little tiny viri, thousands and thousands of them can line themselves up on a, a human hair. They have shown us that we're not in control. In my lifetime, nothing has shown us like that. Our desire for control and our quest for control have been obviated in a little tiny virus. I was watching the whole drama, if you're into tennis, you know, Novak Djokovic can't quite get into Australia, although they did give him a very expensive hotel room while he's waiting to see if he can get in. But uh, he, he is uh, one of the great tennis players. I was reading about Australia. 90% of the country has been vaccinated, but the Omicron virus is breaking out at about the same rate as it, as it is in the United States. We, we don't have control. Now you might think uh, by me telling you that that I'm an anti-vaccine guy, no, I've been fully vaccinated, I'm as safe as you are perhaps, but we're not in control. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask, wear two masks, wait for the vaccine, get the vaccine, get a third vaccine. In Israel last week they introduced a fourth vaccine, I think at Trader Joe's, they're just going to give them to everybody on the way out every time you go. (laughs) But with all of our science, and all of our politics, and all of our care, our sequestration, we're really not in control. Parents often want to over control their children. Yes, parents, we are called to guide our children, and especially guide our grandchildren. But we're not called to control them. When we try, it usually works out poorly for both parties involved. We have parents who are bitterly disappointed and children who tend to be bitter at their parents. I mean, let's groom little Johnny and get him into the best school so that he can get a great career and everything will go well for him in life. And if I have to spend a hundred thousand bucks to cheat on the SAT, well, so be it. And it doesn't work out too well. I want to get little Samantha into a career in medicine. So so we'll get her to do all the right things. Play this sport, play that sport, go to ballet, do public service, and get into the right schools. If we learn anything, friends, from the pages of Scripture, we learn that we are not in control. We are not in control. Furthermore, this is such good news, we are not left to the whims of fate, uh, to the forces of blind chance. In, In God's economy, there is no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as an accident. There is no such thing as chance. Rather, in the pages of Scripture, this is the world that we live in. We find in the Bible the truth that we live in a God-entranced universe where God's counsel, His purpose, His providence, His will, those things always come to fruition because God is God and we are not in control. Can somebody say amen to that? Yeah. We're not in control, but we worship a God who is. And when we try to control that which is God's disaster is usually the result. In the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened. Ah, that sounds like a good idea. I can control the situation by eating an apple. Disaster. Abraham says, ah, she's not my wife, she's my sister. He's trying to control his own life. It doesn't work out too well. Jacob tries to control his destiny. He, he's the guy who steals all the blessings that God would have given him anyway. Do you remember? And do you remember the price he paid for that? He ends up fracturing his own family, separating from his own brother. He's away for 20 years and he ends up getting tricked himself and he ends up marrying the wrong woman all because he wanted to be in control. And then there's David. David tries to control the consequences of his own sin and that leads him to murder. And later he seems to want to control his own kingdom in a way that God doesn't and he takes a census and 70,000 people die as a result. Okay, we could go on and on, but Matthew chapter 2, which we just heard, shows us again The disastrous consequences of asserting control. The passage is simultaneously a warning to those of us who are controllers, I'm one of them, and it gives assurance to each of us, it's so good, that God is the one who's in control. So let's pray and we're going to dive into the scriptures. Lord, We have sinned in a myriad of ways, and one of them is that we want the control that you reserve for yourself. So we pray that this uh, text, this passage, would lead us into greater confidence and greater joy that you are God and that we are not. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at three people or groups of people in this passage. We're going to look at the King, And then we're going to look at the wizards, and then we're going to look at the other king. First of all, verse 1, the king. Uh, This is Herod, the king. This is the guy that we know as Herod the Great. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and we learn right at the outset, as Matthew tells the story, that Herod is the one who's the king. Herod was born 73 B.C. And by this time, get this, for 40 years, the Roman Senate, way up in the capital in Italy, the Roman Senate has referred to King Herod as the King of the Jews. That's what they call him. He became King 40 B.C. Uh, He's been called the King of the Jews. He is known for his ruthlessness. Upon gaining his authority, he crushed all opposition. He imposes on the Jews heavy, heavy taxes from the temple. And he accomplishes during his reign, stunning building projects that we still talk about today. With tax money, he built amphitheaters and hippodromes, palaces. He, he supplied the water to Jerusalem. He built an aqueduct with temple funds that gave Jerusalem the water that they drank. And the Jews hated him for it because of where he got the money. Herod had 10 wives. Wow. And as those wives began to produce children, one after another, Herod wrote five wills, each will obviating the one that came before. Because every new son that was born, that wife snuggled up to King Herod and said, I want him to to receive the throne when you're gone. It was finally Herod Antipas that received the throne from one of Herod's wives. He was ruthless. At one point, he killed 300 court officers at one time. He killed. He murdered his mother. He murdered three of his own sons. Now, Caesar Augustus said it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Now, now it's against that backdrop. After Herod's fifth will that a foreign delegation shows up in Jerusalem, and they ask the question, it's right there in the passage, hey, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You see the threat to King Herod. And that brings us to our second group of people, the wizards. Now, why do I call them the wizards? I'll, I'll tell you. If you are reading the New International Version or maybe I think the Living, New Living Translation, it will just call these people the Magi. And that is basically an untranslated word in our English Bible. The Greek word is Magoi, plural. You got uh, many Magoi, and we just can't say that so well, so we say Magi. It's an untranslated word. The, the English Standard Version uh, interprets a little bit and calls them the wise men. We sing the song, you know, We three kings of Orient are Bearing gifts we traverse afar Field and fountain more And uh, fountain, something like that. <laughs> I love that song. As a kid, you know, I like that. Oh, oh, that's kind of fun, isn't it? Well, it's a Christmas hymn. It was, it's the first Christmas hymn ever written in the United States in about mid-19th century. But these men are not kings, and there's not necessarily three. We're not told how many they are. It could be 30. There could be two. And they're definitely not kings. They are astrologers. Not astronomers, astrologers, which means they're fortune tellers. They practice the magic arts. And the Jews in Jerusalem would have hated them. Now when we think of a magician, we think of a skilled illusionist that has some great YouTube video or in the old days a special on ABC or David Copperfield in Las Vegas. Not so in Bible times. Magic and the magicians are condemned thoroughly and consistently in the Old Testament. Shortly before the time of Jesus, one rabbi wrote, he who learns from the Magus, from the Magoi, from the Magi, is worthy of death. And let me read you from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 47. Uh, Isaiah is talking about the coming uh, Babylonians who are going to destroy the northern and the southern kingdom. And in chapter 47, he addresses the people who listen to the astrologers. He says, keep on then, you people. Isaiah, by the way, I'll give you a little tip on how to enjoy Isaiah. He often drips with sarcasm. And this passage is very sarcastic. Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries, which you have labored since childhood. Perhaps they will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. And now he addresses the people. That was an address to to the magicians. And now he says to the people, all the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward. Let those stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you. Now listen to what he says. Surely they are like stubble, like dry straw. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. These wizards who show up in Jerusalem are not the insider Jews that we read about in Luke's gospel. I mean, who shows up to see the Christ child in Luke's gospel? Shepherds, Jewish shepherds. Yeah, they're lowly, they're despised, but they're, they're insiders. No, no, no. These are outsiders, Gentiles. Friends, this is an amazing testimony at the outset of Matthew's gospel to the universal grace of God, to the missionary heart of God. Here comes Jesus, and at the outset, He is attracting the lowliest of sinners, those who practice and put their faith in the movement of the stars. These wizards are parallel to the outsiders we saw in chapter 1. You remember the four women, Ruth, Rahab, Tamar, Bathsheba. Kyle taught us on this a couple of weeks ago. The last people you would expect in a genealogy of the Son of God. And these are the last people you would expect to show up to find Jesus. I like what Friedrich Dale Bruner says, To Matthew's original readers, these astrologers would be the least deserving guests at the birthday party of Jesus Christ. These magi, these wizards are idolaters. Every other New Testament reference to the Magoi, every other one is negative. So here they come. Looking for Jesus, who has been born king of the Jews. And where do they come from? Do you know? Well, we don't. <laughs> but the two big guesses are they either come from Persia or one country over from Babylon. Now, your guess is as good as mine, but I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to guess Babylon, and I'll tell you why. What was the big threat to Babylon, uh, excuse me, to, to Jerusalem through her history? I mean, what, what did Jeremiah keep saying? He said, The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to get you and they're going to destroy you and they're going to take you away into exile. I mean, that that message was heard over and over and over again. And finally, what happened? The Babylonians came, 586 BC. They utterly destroyed Jerusalem. They carted off just about everybody to Babylon for 70 years and then they began to filter back. Now, you can imagine. You think of the conflict between Serbia and Croatia, you know, for centuries those people have hated each other. You can imagine what people in Jerusalem felt about Babylonians. So here's why I'm going with the Babylonian, the Babylon is the the location of of the origin of the wizards. It just sounds like God to me. Doesn't it sound like God to you? That, That the first time the Babylonians come to bring God's wrath and the second time, here come the Babylonian wizards not to bring God's wrath but to worship God's King, to receive God's mercy. It just kind of sounds to me like something God would do. Again, your guess is as good as mine. But they've come from about a thousand miles away. And we're not sure, but Jesus at this point could be up to two years old. There are a couple of hints in the passage. He, he, uh, he's no longer in a stable. He's living in a house. And And Herod, when he wants to get this other king, he says, kill every male child two years old and younger. So, the the wizards are following the star, what does it say, when it rose, and they've come to worship him. Such a gracious irony, think about it. These are stargazers, and God uses a star to bring them to Christ. I mean, they made an idol of the stars, and God uses a star to bring them to Himself. Uh, The fishermen must have, in some sense, idolized the fish. That was their living, and they were careerists. And Jesus used the fish to bring the disciples to Him. Have you seen that? I had a friend in seminary who, in the 60s, he was taking mescaline. It was a psychedelic drug. Had a vision. Saw Jesus, bowed and worshiped, and was never the same. Gave up drugs and became a pastor. Uh, It's the divine irony, the divine humor of God. He uses things often that would keep us away from Him to bring us into His grace. Sometimes the very things that we're ashamed of are the things that bring us to Christ. Let's not make too much of the star, by the way. Books have been written about this and pamphlets about what the star is, whether it's Halley's Comet or the Northern Lights have come down south or some supernova. That is not the point. The point is that God is using a star to bring the wizards to worship. Here we see the missionary heart of God. The least likely converts come to know Christ. Christ. Remember Abraham, Genesis 12, you follow me and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your family a blessing to everybody, to the whole earth. And here it is. Here come the nations. The missionary heart of God. The Magi are walking examples of God's heart for the nation. Friends, we are a part of that in this room. Christ Press, can I be just a little bit introspective with us this morning? We do not exist for ourselves as a church. We're not a holy club. We're like-minded people gathered together on Sundays and in homes, in our community groups, sing a few songs, pray a few prayers, meet a budget, hear some great sermons, celebrate the Lord's Supper, baptize drink coffee, and go home. That, that's part of it, but that's not it. The church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And we live in a city that is beautiful, wealthy, the envy of America. I was talking to a friend in Denver who's a senator in Colorado, and he said, you know, everybody in Colorado wants to live in Santa Barbara, And then he kept going. He said, everybody in America wants to live in Santa Barbara. And I said, I think everybody in the world wants to live in Santa Barbara. But Santa Barbara is hopelessly lost. And church, I believe God wants to use his church. And he wants to use this church to reach those who are desperate for the gospel. God has plans for us. That are far bigger than anything we have ever thought of. Matthew's gospel begins with the words, in a sense, come and see. And the Babylonians come and see. But the gospel ends go and make disciples, go and proclaim. In the beginning, the Babylonians will come to you, but in the end, you've got to go to the Babylonians. And Christ's Presbyterian church, our Babylon is, starts right outside these doors and it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth and God has great plans to use us. Well, verse 3, Herod hears that the wizards have arrived and he was troubled in his heart and all Jerusalem with him. Why? <laughs> well, we know why. He wants to be in control. And, and these guys have come a thousand miles to worship another king. And why is all Jerusalem troubled? Well, clearly they know who Herod is. And they know that Herod, if he has another outburst, there's no telling who's going to die. So Herod calls the theologians of Jerusalem. He calls the chief priests and the scribes. These are the guys who, who write the study Bible. And he says, hey, by the way, uh, where is the, the, the king of the Jews going to be born? They say, oh, that's easy trivia. He says, he's from Bethlehem. And one of them spouts off, yeah, you know, Micah 5.2. Didn't really say that. They didn't have chapters back then. But, but they cite a, a passage in Micah and say, yeah, the, the, the Christ, the Messiah, the king is going to come from Bethlehem. Easy, easy question. So Herod then regathers the wizards and he says, would you go down to Bethlehem? It's about six miles away. Would you go down there and find this king and, and bring him to me? Because I want to worship him too. It's a ruse, by the way. Herod is intent only on killing the child to maintain his power. So the the wizards hear Herod out, they make the journey, and they meet. Here we meet the third character. They meet the other king. They meet the other king. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Look at verse 9 in your Bible. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So God leads them six miles right to where Jesus is. And when they saw the star, look at your passage, it's so good, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Wow. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down. Talk about losing control. They fell down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, a gift fit for a king. Frankincense, a gift fit for worship. Myrrh, a gift fit for burial. But look at that phrase, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Do you see it? Do you see the quadruple joy? They rejoiced, number one. How did they rejoice? This is good grammar here. They rejoiced with joy. Well, with what kind of joy? They rejoiced with great joy. And how did they do that? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Quadruple joy. Sincere, fall on your face, worship. the presentation of gifts. The wizards have lost control. They've given up control. They have heard and followed the voice of God. They've given up the stars. They're no longer looking up. They're looking down at perhaps a two-year-old boy. Joy, worship, gifts. Now I want to ask you, think about your life do you have this joy this joy in the pages of the bible is free but it doesn't come without cost all you have to do to get this joy is to give up control to gaze to submit to worship. It's kind of a cryptic poem, but T.S. Eliot wrote a poem called The Journey of the Magi and he says, he speaks for the Magi. We came to find life, but we found death. The death of our gods. When you come to Christ, when I come to Christ, we come for life, we find death. We find death to all of our gods. You see how how the passage ends? They went home by another route. When you come to Jesus, there, you don't go on the same path. It's a new route. Well, we can't pass by this passage without noticing the three reactions to the news. The theologians, the chief priests, the scribes, they are utterly indifferent. Oh yeah, we got the answer, Micah, born in Bethlehem. And it appears they go right back to writing their books. Utter indifference. Is that the response of some of us in this room? And then there's the response of the controlling king. He makes every effort to kill the Messiah. you got to read on for that. But, but the response of King Herod is hardened unbelief, joyless self-preservation. And you know it doesn't work. He will be dead within a year. But the wizards, the astrologers, the stargazers, they give up control. They pursue the king of the Jews and they experience exceedingly great joy and they go home by another way. Well, I told you we were going to look at three people. Let's look at At the end here, that third person, the other king, the two-year-old toddler. He's called at the outset the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. Did you see it? The king of the Jews. Well, if you go home today and you look at that phrase and you say, well, I'm going to see where else that comes up in Matthew, you have to wait until chapter 27. And it comes up three times there. The third says this, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The main point of the passage for us is that this is the King who's in control. He's worthy of our worship our gifts. He's worthy of our lives. And we come and we fall before Him and and we go home by another way with great joy. But the other king? The king of the Jews? The eternal second person of the triune God? The one who could calm a storm? The one who could make lunch for thousands with a few fish and a few loaves? The one who could turn water into the best wine ever consumed? The one who, remember when, Jesus, uh, when Peter cuts off the guy's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and die? You remember that? Remember what Jesus says? Put your sword away. If I wanted to, I could ask the Father and He would send thousands of angels. What's the point? The point is, the one who is in absolute control, who created the universe, who sustains the universe, that one gave up control willingly for the joy set before Him. He suffers and dies so that we might trust Him in all things at all times and enter into His joy forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.